We're going to pick up tonight in chapter 14. We uh, left off last week, chapter 13. Lot parted from uh, Abram. And some things have transpired since then, and we're going to see what that is. Continuing the theme and the thought of sort of this, you know, a life led by the Spirit versus a life led by the flesh. And if you need a Bible tonight, go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, Dom, our usher, will be glad to give you one to use for tonight. And if you don't have a Bible at home and you would like to take that with you when you leave, you're welcome to do so. We'd love for you to read your Bible at home as well. Well, let's turn, if you haven't already, to chapter 14. Just a real quick breakdown as to what this chapter holds for us. Of course, the focus is still on Abram. His name hasn't yet become Abraham. God is working in his life. This section breaks up into two parts, really. Uh, We've got the rescue of his nephew Lot, and we have a meeting uh, with this mysterious Melchizedek, who I'm sure we've all heard of, and this is where we first see the occurrence of tithing, and Abram tithes to Melchizedek. And both events highlight the contrast between Abram and Lot, and then also Melchizedek and this other king that we're going to see tonight, the king of Sodom, sort of showing us again the flesh versus the spirit. So it's an amazing uh, contrast. So we're picking up right where God had just declared the land belonged to Abram. He told Abram, lift up your eyes. Wherever you look, this is the land that I am giving you. So let's jump into verses 1 to 3. We see an international war breaking out. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these kings joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. And it's really striking to me that not long, oh, and by the way, of course, we have our slides tonight, uh, a little bit like a Bible college class. We will have a test at the end tonight, so make sure you pay attention. And uh, Kelly, my TA, will be going around making sure you're not on your phones when you're not supposed to be. But this struck me today, I, you know, as I was just meditating on this passage, that it didn't take long for violence and corruption to return to the world after God gave man a new beginning, right? God had judged the earth primarily because the thoughts and intents of man's heart were continually wicked. And one of the biggest problems for mankind was the violence that had permeated the entire earth. And so we, we learned that really even a new beginning in itself is not enough. What is needed for man is a new nature, a new life in the spirit. Man on his own is not capable. And this is why Jesus said in John 3, 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
This is the only way to become a new creature, to be able to inherit heaven and the spiritual life. Man needs to be born again. So it's very insightful. And it's interesting to me that even back in this time, as simple as society was, simplistic in the sense that it wasn't super advanced with technology, uh, you would think that people would be content just to grow their vegetables and, and raise their sheep, but there is still international unrest. There is international war, and um, you know, man is not living at peace with one another. And that is because until man is fully at peace with God, he cannot be at peace with man amongst themselves. And so this is why we need change from the inside outward. Changing the environment, giving us a new beginning is not enough. And the scriptures and God's work prove this to us time and time again. This is why we need a savior. So this is also the first war uh, that is recorded in scripture. It's probably not the first war that occurred, right? We know that prior to the flood, uh, there was great violence in all the earth. But this is the first one that the scripture records, and it's probably because it just it involves Abram. Remember, again, this is the section where God called Abram out of uh, the land of the Chaldees, in chapter 12. He made a great promise to him of what he would do in his life, what he would do through him to bless the world, bless all the families of the earth. And he's in the process of doing that. So what transpires with Abram is important for us. And God is making sure that we see how he's at work in Abram's life even now. So this is here because of that. So we've got four nations that are coming up against five. They're gathered for battle. This is kind of a, a commonplace coalition that would happen in this day. Nations would gather together. It's not much different really than what we have today with alliances, right? We have uh, NATO, we have the UN, we have UN troops, etc. But this particular military quest really gives the opportunity for Abram to be sort of established in the land. He's going to be he's going to become known now as a force to be reckoned with. And I think it's interesting that even today Israel who uh, is the is the nation that God gave and created from uh, from Abram is still a force to be reckoned with. A country the size of our state here in New Jersey is an international power and uh, something that the world recognizes as a mighty nation. And the thing about that is that when God is fighting for you, size is of no consequence. Amen? It's also true that, you know, um, if you know, you're fighting against God, it doesn't matter how great you are either. Size is of no consequence. So what matters is what is God doing and what side uh, are you on? But then we get these names of these uh, kings. And this is, you know, as I looked into this, I found it really interesting. They're not really encouraging names, but they are very fitting for their character. Let me just read you a few kind of ties in with where they are ruling and, and leading their people. Amraphel, king of Shinar, means one that speaks of dark things. I wonder what his parents were thinking when he was born. They said, let's name him one who speaks dark things. I like the sound of that. And then we have Tidal, king of Goyim. And Goyim we know from 
you know, uh, living close to Lakewood. That, that is simply the word in Hebrew for nations. It refers usually to the Gentiles. Uh, but title, king of going, it means actually that you shall be cast out of heaven. That's a good one. Then we have Bera, the king of Sodom, means son of evil. That's probably my favorite one, and we're going to see more of, more of Bera later on this evening. And then we have Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, which means son of, of wickedness. So <laughs> uh, no wonder there's unrest, right, among these nations. These are, usually names are representative of the person that has the name, and these are characteristic of what was happening. And just to kind of give you a picture, uh, this is the valley of Sedim at the Salt Sea. Somewhere in this area, in this vicinity, is uh, where they were gathering for war. Give you a little visual aid there. Well, why are they at war? Well, we know it's primarily because man is not fit to rule over himself. Man was created to commune with God, to be in surrender to his lordship. Uh, but there's a specific thing that's taking place here. Let's read verses 4 to 9, and this will explain to us why these nations are at war with each other. Verse 4 tells us, 12 years they served Kedolaomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedolaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim, against Kedulaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Alassar. Four kings against five. So there's been some oppression, right? As often has happened in the past. I mean, that's kind of how America was born, right? As a, uh, a free nation, it was under the United Kingdom, and it had to pay tribute to uh, the United Kingdom, and America finally said, we're done with this, we want to be free of this burden. So it's kind of what's happening here. Twelve years, they've been paying tribute to Kedalaumer, and so they decided, let's join together these small nations that are in the area, five, they're a little bit weaker, but smaller than Kedalaumer and his alliance, and so for a whole year, the whole 13th year, they did not pay. During that 13th year, most likely, Kedolaomer said, okay, enough is enough. These guys aren't paying. We're going to invade, and we're going to make them pay. And so he builds his plan to invade. He, he gets his alliance together, and, uh, and he comes to enforce the taxes. You know the old saying, right? There's only two things sure in life. Taxes and death, death and taxes, uh, sometimes they go hand in hand. 
But uh, I'm thankful that we can say as believers in Christ, there's more to life than, than just that. We have more that is sure in life than just that in Christ. So here is an event, a world event, because we have, again, nine nations that are at battle. This is a significant thing. And it could seem as though this is just a random event happening that Abram finds himself in. But let me remind us that no event in the world is random. To be random would require that the sovereignty of God is completely removed from what takes place in the world. And thankfully, that is not the case. Nothing happens apart from God's allowance and apart from God accomplishing his purposes in that and through that. And that's encouraging to me, especially in this time that we are in, in the world, in our country, uh, longing more and more for heaven. I have had enough of this world. I'm ready for what God has prepared in eternity. But God is sovereign. God is working. And so he's using this very event to accomplish his purposes with Abram, for Abram, and also for the world. Remember what he promised to Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. He called him out and he said, I will make your name great. I will make you great. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God is doing that, right? He's, he's establishing Abram in the land through this, which we're going to see how that unfolds. But be encouraged, because no matter how it may seem, the purposes of God are still being fulfilled today. We have to get our heads out of politics for a little while. We need to take a break from the TV, from the radio stations and listening to the news. Get into the Word of God. Let's remember what God has said. Let's remember what God has promised and look at what God is doing and what he will do. And trust me, you will be better for it. Nothing's going to change in the world because you watched the news. Nothing that's going to change is your mood. Amen? <laughs> I know that to be true for me. I can always, my wife and I, we can tell when we've been watching stuff or listening to stuff. Even, even conservative stuff because I agree with a lot of the stuff that they're saying, but it puts my mind where I, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be there. So remember this, history, I like to say it like this, this is not mine, I didn't make this up, but history is his story. That's why we can look back into what has transpired in the scriptures and see how God has worked through it and accomplished his purposes. During these events, I'm confident the people of God had no idea how God was working. They probably didn't even realize uh, what he had in mind. But hindsight is twenty twenty, and uh, we can learn this lesson from the scriptures and be encouraged by that. So let's take a look at some of the things that God is doing through this, right, under the idea that history is his story. Well, I mentioned it already. Number one, this is the part of the outworking of his promise to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. By this war taking place and Abram getting involved... I'll give you a couple moments to kill that alarm. Is that an alarm or a phone ring? <laughs> By God doing this, it's going to establish Abram and then Israel in the land. And this is part of the promise. 
Also, Abram's rescue of Lot, again, establishes him as a leader in the region. Imagine the testimony, right? Five nations against four could not do what Abram does that we'll see with 318 servants from his house. This is the original 300 from Sparta, right? But then we also have a strong lesson in what the consequences are for sin and the greatness of God's grace, right? Not only are God's purposes accomplished through world events and local events and things that happen in circumstances, but we're constantly learning from them. Things that take place carry also spiritual truths. And so God uses this to open the land for Israel, right, to move into the territory. That's going to happen after these uh, nations are dispersed. And lastly, let's not forget that through even these wars, God is judging these nations. Remember last week when Mike was teaching Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13, God had a lot to say about this region and what was taking place. And he said that their wickedness was exceedingly evil. They were exceedingly wicked. So I see this even as sort of a precursor to what God is going to do coming up in the chapters ahead when he himself judges Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, This was a chance for them to kind of be shaken and think about the life that they're living. So God uses that to judge evil as he often does. So in this context, then, Lot is taken captive. Let's jump into verse 10 through 12, and we'll see what happens. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So you notice there's special attention given to Lot here. He's not just part of the people of Sodom, but uh, he's mentioned as the son of Abram's brother, and that's the reason why this, is, this account is here, and why Abram is going to go to war to rescue him. But the first thing that strikes me, and I think it's kind of funny, is that The very people who lived in this land, the locals, right, the king of Sodom, Gomorrah, these people, this is their land, and they fall into the asphalt pits as they're trying to flee, as if they didn't really know their land. It's interesting, Ezekiel tells us something about the people in Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 16. He speaks of the opulent life and the lazy life that they led, and it was self-indulgence, right? Just indulging in the pleasures of the flesh. And here's the thing about that. That can make a nation weak. They were not fit for battle. And the old saying is true, right? Sin makes you stupid, and you do stupid things. This is true, and I think this highlights that for us. So even though... In their wisdom and in their efforts to plan, they're like five nations. We're going we're gonna to gather together. We're going to join forces. We're going to fight against Kedalamer and his alliance. Uh, 
they lose. And in the process, uh, Lot is taken captive. As a citizen of that territory, make sure we, we don't forget that. You see, I'm not saying, and we're going to look more at this in, in just a bit, Lot was not living necessarily like the people of this area, but he was there for the reasons that they were there for. Not partaking in the immorality, but he was enjoying all the benefits, all the luxury that the land offered. And he was willing to put up with the nonsense that he saw day in and day out. And yes, Peter tells us that it, it, it tortured, it vexed his soul, what he saw happening. But it wasn't enough to make him move out of there. And it doesn't give us the idea that he was there with any sort of ministry mindset to make an impact uh, in the area. He was there for himself. We saw that when he parted ways with Abram. He looked and he saw the beauty of the land. And he chose that without seeking the Lord. Now here's the thing. When you identify with the world by the world standards, you may find yourself suffering with the world because of what the world does. That happens. Now, again, Peter tells us that Lot was not a wicked man, right? He tells us, he calls him righteous Lot. He didn't live like the inhabitants of the land. So we're not here to judge Lot, even though he's a good example of the flesh and somebody who lives a self-directed life, not led by the Spirit. And this is true. But we are here to judge his judgment. His character may have been clean, but his judgment was lacking. You see, human judgment, apart from purging it in prayer, for the counsel of God can often be disastrous. And I understand that personally. I've been there. So if we ask the question, if I ask you guys the question right now, hey, should Lot have avoided Sodom? What would you say? Most of us would say yes, right? If I ask you why, what was, what's the reason he should avoid Sodom? What's that? Temptation. That's a good one. I like that. Right? It's, a, it's an exceedingly wicked area. But it's kind of hard to find an area in the world today that isn't full of sin. Right? So was he wrong for going to Sodom simply because Sodom is a sinful place? I mean, remember, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. The difference is that Lot didn't go to Sodom because God directed him there. We, we don't see him seeking God's counsel, right? We don't see him building altars like his uncle Abram has been doing and will continue to do as we travel with Abram throughout the book of Genesis on his journeys. He's constantly coming back to that place of worship and acknowledging God and seeking God, worshiping God. So this is where he went wrong. See, if God had sent him to Sodom, well, he would be absolutely in the will of God. It wouldn't matter how wicked Sodom was. God would have had a purpose in sending him there, just like he had a purpose in sending Jonah to preach to Nineveh. And, then, and Jonah didn't want to go. So it's not inherently wrong to go to a sinful place. Otherwise, where would we go in the world, right? 
Now, the Lord may lead us to terrifying places when we follow him. He may lead us to places that terrify us personally, or he may lead us to places of great luxury, and we can look at that and say, oh, yeah, sure, they're following the Lord. Yeah, they, they followed his calling to Hawaii, right? And we, we become a little judgmental. But, you know, I think of how God called us from Italy, which I didn't want to leave, to, uh, you know, serve for seven years at uh, the Bible College in Marietta and the conference center there, and it is absolutely a resort. It looks like a tropical resort. It's full of palm trees, natural hot springs. Kind of sounds a lot like Sodom. <laughs> Thankfully, it wasn't quite as bad as Sodom in the sin capacity. But he called us to a, a great place, a place that we, we really enjoyed both because of the ministry but also the beauty. And we can serve God and be accomplishing God's purposes in places of great beauty. It's not wrong to, to pursue a beautiful place to live or a place that offers uh, good opportunity for us, maybe better quality of life. It's not wrong to seek that. But you see, the difference is we have an advantage and a duty as believers to seek the counsel of God. And I remember when I was pursuing hard after a move to North Carolina, I wanted to get my family out of California and move to North Carolina. I was really convicted that we needed to buy a house for, for the first time in our life. You know, we had been, um, my wife and I had been married 26 years, and this is the first house we own now here in New Jersey. And uh, so, you know, I, I was really feeling that, um, you know, as I'm getting older, we don't really have anything planned for our future, and we need to start planning and building that. And as I was thinking of places to live, and, and the Lord was, I believe the Lord was moving us on out of California North Carolina was the place. It's where most of my family lives. It's, you know, lower cost of living, great job opportunities. It's sort of still in the Bible belt, right? So I was looking at all these things and thinking, oh, well, surely we can, you know, find a way to still be in ministry there and serve the Lord. But I can tell you, honestly, it wasn't my first, my first thought wasn't, you know, how can I serve God in, in, in North Carolina? My first thought was, how can I get out of California, make a better living, you know, with lower expenses, and just have a, have a game changer for our life? That was my main thought. But I did pray. I did pray. Um, you know, it was kind of a prayer that was like, God, here's what I really want to do. If it be your will, and I really hope it is, and it should be your will because it makes sense. It was kind of that prayer, would you just bless this plan? I can tell you my wife wasn't on board. I wasn't happy about that. I was getting, you know, frustrated with that, and she wasn't seeing the Lord leading it. So I said, well, let's just pray that God will close the door. Let's knock on the door, and if he closes it, okay, we know the outcome. And he closed it. But I tried kicking it down, you know, a little bit. I wasn't happy with the door being closed. And eventually the, I accepted it, and the Lord brought us back to California. And... Um, you know, as we sought him again about where to go, the Lord led us to New Jersey. And isn't it funny that he would do that? I Look, I love New Jersey. I, I was born and raised here. But New Jersey statistically has the high, since 2018, has the highest amount of exodus, people getting out of the state than any other place in the nation. And the Lord's like, I'm sending you to New Jersey. Well, thanks, God. Oh, we've been so blessed. And... 
we wouldn't trade it. We get to be here with all you sinners. I feel better about myself when I look at you guys and your sin. Just kidding. So here's the problem, right? With Lot, it wasn't wrong necessarily that he went to Sodom. His failure was that he wasn't, we don't see him communing with God about it. We don't see him seeking the Lord. We see Abram doing that, and we see God then speaking to Abram and making things clear to Abram. In fact, after this very chapter, next week, we're going to see God speaking to Abram again in a vision. The word of God comes to him. And it's because Abram, at at this time in his life, he is faithfully coming back to a place of communion with God, seeking God, worshiping God, trusting God, and walking by faith. This is why we call him the father of faith. Now, let me exhort us one more time before we move on from this section, that the difference here is I believe Lot wasn't just anybody. It's not just because he's Abram's relative that God was not letting Lot get away with anything. I'm thoroughly convinced. You see, remember, Lot came with Abram from the land of the Chaldeans, right? We can be confident that he understood Abram is leaving the land of Chaldea because God has called him to. He told him, get up, leave your family, leave your country, and come to a land that I will show you. Well, Lot saw this happening in Abram's life, and he follows him. And all along up until this point, we, we can be sure that he sees Abram building altars, communing with God, seeking God, worshiping God. We never get that sense from him that he was doing this. So I would say he knows of God most high. He knows who the Lord is, but he's not necessarily a spiritual-minded man. And listen, A lot of believers can be like that. We can know who the Lord is. We can be a believer. uh, But we're not spiritual minded and we're operating largely in the flesh. And the difference between us operating in the flesh and the world operating in the flesh is that we are not just anybody. We belong to God. And when we belong to God, he doesn't let us get away with anything. I'm thankful for that. Right? Remember earlier I said we have the responsibility, but we also have the advantage of seeking God's counsel. It's actually foolish if we don't. Now, we don't have to seek his counsel. We can do whatever we want, but it's going to come at a price. So here comes Lot's rescue, verse 13 to 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. And we see that Abram had some, some military wisdom here. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Did you catch what, he, what Moses says here, inspired by God's spirit, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive? Now, that's not a mistake. Uh, 
many cultures, the word actually used here is ah in Hebrew. It means, it means brother. It's not a mistake. Uh, but many non-English cultures use the word brother for uh, cousins, nephews, and, and so forth. Because really what they're re- referring to and what they're honoring is the parents of those people, right? And in Serbia, um, you know, my wife would call her cousin her brother or her sister, even though they weren't born from the same parents. It's just a cultural thing. But what I love about this is it brings to mind a brother in the Lord. Because Abram hears this news, and immediately he hears, oh, my brother is in trouble. And he immediately takes action because his brother was taken captive, right? There's this urgency there. Turn with me for a minute to Galatians 6, 1. This is where God exhorts us in the New Testament to do something very similar. And it's amazing because, you know, sinfulness, a life that is just filled with a, a sinful lifestyle is, is likened to captivity in Scripture. So look what Paul says to the church here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brethren... If a man is overtaken, right, taken captive, overcome in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. Now, going back to Abram, back to Genesis, again, Abram is that spiritual one, isn't he? Right? And so what is he he doing? Well, this is a physical captivity, but it's the same principle. He is going to restore Lot and the people that are caught up and are in need. So Abram acts for his brother, and Abram acts in faith to God's counsel, right? He acted in faith and was able to witness, as a result, the faithfulness of God. Did he go and fail? No, he he went and he succeeded, He delivered them, and I love the spiritual lesson there of delivering these people out of captivity and setting them free. Now, unfortunately, Lot doesn't take him long. He goes back to Sodom. He gets caught up again in the life over there, and he has to be rescued a second time later on. We'll see that further ahead in our weekly study in chapter 17 and on. But notice that urgency that was there, and we we know that Abram sought the Lord about this very rescue. How do we know that? Well, when we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see him interact with the king of Sodom, and he tells the king of Sodom that he made an oath to God that he would not keep anything from this uh, plunder, from the war. So we know he had prayed specifically about this. He made an oath to God that he will not take anything for himself, and um, that's going to be in verse 22. And so we know he sought the Lord for this, right? So as he sought the Lord, God gave him wisdom. He gave him insight into what to do. He gave him confidence that this is something he needs to do. Again, this is part of God accomplishing his purposes in Abram's life, establishing him in in the land, making his name great, and eventually blessing all the families of the earth because from his family the Messiah would come. That's an amazing thing. And so... Guys, when when Abram succeeds, it's because he was walking by faith in the counsel of God. When he fails, and he does sometimes, and we will see that, 
it's because he was walking in, in a self-directed manner apart from God's counsel. Now, I, I look at this and I think, yeah, you know, Abram, you're going to take 318 servants and you're going to go after these alliances, right, this alliance. You're going you're to fight the United Nations. You, you better pray, right? You better have God's counsel and his, his approval and his blessing and favor. So here's the thing about it. You know, time and time again, what we see in the scriptures, yet it's often misunderstood, is what is faith? Faith is not you being confident that God can and will do anything and everything. Oh, I just have faith that God's going to do it. We're just going to go, and he's just going to give us the victory. That's presumption. And doing something like this, making you know, life-changing decisions without the counsel of God, just because you believe God's going to come through, you're putting him in a position to do something he never promised he would do. Unless he gave you the counsel to do so. If we've sought him on it, then we can have confidence that he will do it. And that is what faith is. It's responding to what God has led us to do. You know, if I were to climb up to these rafters and, and say, uh, hey, Dave, you know, come on over here and stand underneath me. I'm going to jump down here now. And I have faith that God's going to stop me from falling and striking my foot on Dave's head. Dave, would you do it? Thank you for saying no. I, hope you, I was hoping you'd say no. Because that's not faith, right? Unless he spoke to us both and said, go ahead and do that. That's presumption. And many times we mistake presumption for faith. Listen, faith is absolutely 100% rooted in the character and nature of God. Yes, God can do all of those things, but has he said he will? That's the question we have to ask. And we don't know the answer to that question unless we've sought his counsel and received his leading and his approval, right? Now we get to mysterious Melchizedek. Abram is going to meet this guy that nobody knows who he is, where he comes from, but we know what he represents in Scripture as the parallels are made to Christ Jesus. So let's look at verses 17 to 20. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. It's very interesting. So Abram's here. He encounters these two kings in the king's valley. One is the king of Sodom. One is the king of Salem. Great contrast there. Sodom, uh, the name actually means burning, like flames on fire. And one means peace. Salem means peace. It's where we, we know the word in Hebrew, shalom. This is salem. It's, a, it's the same root. And then we have the king of Sodom and the king of, uh, uh, of Salem, Melchizedek. Bera, king of Sodom. What does his name mean? Son of evil. Love that name. And then we have, have Melchizedek. And what does his name mean? Well, his name is a compound word. Melech means king in Hebrew, and Tzadik 
which is the word actually for the, the Hasidic Jews. It means, uh, uh, Hasidic is Hatzadik, it means the righteous ones, right? So this is king of righteousness. Two very strong contrasts that come out and meet Abram in this valley. And of course, like I said, this uh, Salem is peace. And, and by the way, Salem is today's Jerusalem. It's in the actual name, Yerusalem, right? So it means city of peace. And I love that God chose the city of peace to make his name known. Isn't that cool? This city actually, it's interesting, it, it has maintained its name in a few different uh, Semitic forms for more than 2,000 years before Christ. All through that history, the history of this city was preserved and God chose to manifest himself to his people first and then to the world in that city. And it is significant that the place he chose would be called the city of peace because peace in the place where God chose to commune and meet with man is actually what all mankind desires most. Peace with God, peace with himself. Man may not understand that that's what it is, but when he tastes of it in Christ, then he discovers, ah, now I am filled. Now I'm content. I can be at rest now with everything else because I'm at rest with God and I, I have peace. This is what man ultimately wants more than anything else, yet may not understand what it is in his in his quest for fulfillment in life. But yeah, this name all the way back to the Egyptian uh, ex, um, execration text, text from 1850 has the name Rusalim uh, from Jerusalem. So forget the Big Apple. I want to go live in the city of peace. And Jesus makes that possible. So I'm thinking here, I'm putting myself in the shoes of Abram we have these names of kings that are kind of like they're from a horror movie. Son of evil, one who speaks dark things, all these different names. And finally he comes and he meets one out of ten kings who has a godly name. Who has a name that is at least encouraging. But in this particular minute, this moment, as these kings come out and meet him, he stands in between the flesh and the spirit, in a sense. He stands between corruption and righteousness. And both of them offer him something. The king of Sodom will offer him all the plunder if he will give, if Abram will give him the people. Literally, the word there is souls. Give me the souls and I'll give you the things. And we're going to see how Abram responds to that. But I think it's interesting that he finds himself between the carnal and the spiritual. So he's offered something by both, but only re receives from Melchizedek. Bera, you know, he's the first one to come out, and he offers a trade, maybe thinking that Abram either wanted to keep the people, and so he's saying, look, just give me the people, you take the goods. We're not really sure what he's thinking here or why he says that to him. It could be in defense of, 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 of uh, Bera that he actually cared about his people. Not sure, but I, I find it interesting that there's this, it sounds very much like the enemy, that Satan, who would say, 
Give me the souls and you can have all the things. But Abram only wants to receive from the one whose name means king of righteousness. And I think that that's interesting. His response for us is a lesson both to Lot who's there and to everybody from then on that he only wants, he doesn't want to receive anything from the enemy. doesn't matter what the enemy offers him. He wants to only receive from what God Most High has for him. From him, for him. And he, we see him eating at his table as bread and wine are offered. And so there's some parallels that come up with this mysterious Melchizedek and, of course, Christ, our Messiah. So let's take a look at this before we wrap up tonight. First, of course, the obvious one, king of, of, of Salem, king of peace. Jesus is called the prince of peace. Probably that prophecy being uh, old as it was in the Old Testament doesn't mean he would only be a prince. He is absolutely the king, but you're first a prince and then you're a king. And Jesus is that prince of peace. But then what's interesting is we learned of Melchizedek that he has a dual role, and this was not normal for the priesthood. You could not mix politics and worship of Yahweh. But this king of righteousness, he is both priest and actually a king, a leader in the city of Salem. And we know that Jesus is both king and high priest. But then he's also the king of righteousness. And what is Jesus? Jesus is the righteousness of God. The one righteous who died for the unrighteous that we might become the righteousness of God. But here's something else that's interesting. He's not from the tribe of Levi. You could not otherwise be a priest to El Elyon, God Most High, unless you were called and sanctified from the Levite tribe. But Melchizedek is not a Levite. Neither is Jesus. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But you remember in Psalm 110, Verse 4, it's interesting because you read that psalm and, you know, David is talking about something completely different. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God says, Behold, I have sworn I, you shall be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's like, what is that? Well, we don't really know much about it until we get into the New Testament and we get to the book of Hebrews. And we learn a lot more about this Melchizedek and what the order of Melchizedek means. And we're not going to get into all that detail tonight because we're studying Genesis, but you can research that yourself in Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, where there's a lot said of Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then, of course, we have the bread and the wine, and we cannot see that without thinking of communion, right? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, Luke chapter 22, verse 19 where Jesus gave bread and wine to his disciples, and he gave not just the bread and the wine, but he gave the meaning with it. That the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, were actually the very blessing and the very sustenance that would give us life, not life physical, but life eternal, life in the Spirit. 
And I think it's remarkable that this Melchizedek comes out and, and as he greets Abram, what does he do? He greets him with bread and wine. And isn't this how Jesus greets every believer? When you first become a believer, you are greeted with the offer of his body and his blood. And that is how you come into a relationship with God. Now here, really to be fair to the text, the, the, the um, bread and wine was a staple food. It was very common to give bread and wine, especially to, ba- uh, to battle-wearied men after battle. It was a staple food, but we can't escape the significance of that, especially in the context of Melchizedek. Well, Let's ask the question because I know you want to know. Was Melchizedek a theophany? In other words, a theophany is an appearance of God in the flesh. Many would say yes, and there are reasons why, and some would say no, and I won't give you a definitive yes or no. I'll just give you some of the reasons why uh, this is thought very often, and it is possible that this is a theophany. One of the reasons why, as I mentioned in Hebrews 5 through 7, is that we're told Melchizedek had no genealogy. You can't trace his lineage. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know where he was born, when he was born. We don't know when he died or if he ever died. And so Melchizedek is spoken of in Hebrews as one without beginning, one without end, one who has no genealogy. And so that is typically you know, thought of as... Um, referring to Christ. But let me give you the contrast to that because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, he who has no beginning and no end, yet he does have a genealogy on earth, doesn't he? So there's that to be said kind of in contrast to whether this is actually Jesus appearing on earth. Now in favor of the argument that this is a theophany, remember what Jesus said. We've been studying in the Gospel of John on Sundays. Remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, verse 56 and 57, he said, behold, he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Could this be what Jesus is talking about? Or was it simply his life of faith when the promise was made and God brought the sacrifice when Isaac was on the altar and he said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And Jesus is then introduced in the New Testament as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Was, is that what Jesus refers to? It's very possible. I lean more towards that idea than that this is actually Jesus. I think that the New Testament writers are simply using Melchizedek to make the point of Jesus' um, hypostatic nature, that he is both God and man. He has no beginning in eternity nor end, but as a man, he does have a genealogy. So I, that's where I lean. But again, in favor, uh, Abram sees the superiority, or he recognizes the superiority of Melchizedek and gives him a tenth, a tithe of all that he has. Now, why did he do that? Well, if you ask me, I believe the reason is because he understood this is the priest of the Most High God. And El Elyon, the God, God Most High, is the same as Yahweh. And that's later clarified uh, 
just a few chapters later. So I, my, I think Abram is recognizing the superiority of, of Melchizedek here. He's honoring him because Abram, who was called out by God Most High to serve him, is now standing before the high priest of God Most High, and therefore he is actually honoring God rather than considering Melchizedek uh, to be a theophany. Of course, both are possible. I'll let you decide. You can do your homework. Don't decide until you do your homework, though. And then you can come and tell me how I was wrong. All right, lastly, we're going to close it up here. Abram passes the test. What test are you talking about? Well, let's look at verses 21 to 24. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high. And by the way, that's another one. Lord here is Yahweh, God most high is El Elyon. Abram understood that the one Melchizedek served is Yahweh. The possessor of heaven and earth. Same wording that Melchizedek used when he blessed him that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, Pharaoh, <laughs> son of evil, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So there it is. Whether this was a test or not, I take it as it was because we see that Abram made an oath and in this moment, this was the moment of truth where he could have had all the plunder that he wanted, but he, he was very protective of God's glory and letting God fulfill the promise. And he's not, certainly not going to let someone whose name is son of evil contribute to God making him great in the land. So he passes the test. He keeps his oath, he, he's protective of God's glory, and I'm convinced he believes that in this very moment, God is in the process of fulfilling the promise he made to him in chapter 12. And let's not think that chapter 12 was just a few days ago. We don't know how much time has gone by, but it seems a significant amount. Already he has 318 servants in his own house. God has blessed him and made him prosper already, and there's more to come. So I'm convinced that Abram sees this, that God is in the process of still making Abram what he said he would do, uh, what he said he would be in chapter 12. And Abram's very sensitive to not allow anything to be added or taken away from God's work in his life. Now, he does make some mistakes coming up, and we're going to see that. And I love that because the life of faith does not mean a life of perfection. But the righteous man will fall seven times, and he still gets up again, right? Amen. So after this test, next week we're going to see chapter 15, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. What we learn from this, brothers and sisters, is that if we walk with God, if we commune with him, we hear from him for our life. The word of the Lord will come to us. We will get direction for our life from the Lord. So many lessons here in the life of Abram in contrast to the life of Lot, but what I come away with more than anything else is that God is worthy of our trust, he's faithful. If we choose to walk in the spirit, 
and commune with him, we will see that faithfulness day in and day out. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Amen.